I don't know who needs to hear this, but we have just quietly released the first episode of our long-awaited audiobook adaption of Jane Austen's Persuasion. We've submitted it to all the usual streaming platforms, so go and search for it where you listen to podcasts to see it, to see it, to find it, to listen to it. I think that's the point. Podcasts, you don't use your eyes, you use your ears. Anyway, it's going to be available there soon, so you should go and find it um, and see if it's available yet. For more info about the podcast, visit our website, which is www.bnt.org.au. Chapter 47. As the carriage bearing Elizabeth and her uncle and aunt made its way out of the town, Mr. Gardiner turned to his niece. I've been thinking it over again, Elizabeth. It appears to me so very unlikely that any young man should form such a design against a girl who is by no means unprotected or friendless, and who is actually staying in the colonel's family, that I'm strongly inclined to hope the best. Could he expect that her friends would not step forward? Could he expect to be noticed again by the regiment after such an affront to Colonel Forster? His temptation is not adequate to the risk. Elizabeth brightened at his words. Do you really think so? Upon my word... I begin to be of your uncle's opinion. It is really too great a violation of decency, honour and interest for him to be guilty of. I cannot think so very ill of Wickham. Can you yourself, Lizzie, so wholly give him up as to believe him capable of it? Not perhaps of neglecting his own interest, but of every other neglect, I can believe him capable. If... Indeed, it should be so, but I dare not hope it. Why should they not go on to Scotland if that had been the case? In the first place, there is no absolute proof that they are not gone to Scotland. But their removing from the chaise into a hackney coach is such a presumption. And besides, no traces of them were found to be on the Barnet Road. Well then... Supposing them to be in London, they may be there, though for the purpose of concealment, for no more exceptional purpose. It's not likely that money should be very abundant on either side, and it might strike them that they could be more economically, though less expeditiously, married in London than in Scotland. But why all this secrecy? Why any fear of detection? Why must their marriage be private? Oh, no, 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 no. This is not likely. His most particular friend, you see by Jane's account, was persuaded of his never intending to marry her. Wickham will never marry a woman without some money. Cannot afford it. And what claims has Lydia? What attraction has she beyond youth, health and good humour that could make him, for her sake forego every chance of benefiting himself by marrying well. As to what restraint the apprehensions of disgrace in the militia might throw on dishonourable elopement with her, I am not to judge, for I know nothing of the effects that such a step might produce. But as to your other objection, I am afraid it will hardly hold good. Lydia has no brothers to step forward. And he might imagine, from my father's behaviour, from his indolence, and the little attention he has ever seemed to give about what was going forward in his family, 
that he would do as little and think as little about it as any father could do in such a matter. But can you think that Lydia is so lost to everything but love of him as to consent to live with him on any terms other than marriage? Elizabeth replied with tears in her eyes. It does seem, and it is most shocking indeed that a sister's sense of decency and virtue in such a point should admit of doubt, but really I know not what to say. Perhaps I am not doing her justice, but she is very young. She has never been taught to think on serious subjects, and for half the last year, nay, for a twelve-month, she has been given up to nothing but amusement and vanity. She has been allowed to dispose of her time in the most idle and frivolous manner, and to adopt any opinions that come in her way. Since the militia were first quartered in Meriton, nothing but love, flirtation and officers have been in her head. She has been doing everything in her power by thinking and talking on the subject to give greater, what shall I call it, a, a susceptibility to her feelings, which are naturally lively enough. And we all know that Wickham has every charm of person and address that can captivate a woman. But you see that Jane does not think so very ill of Wickham as to believe him capable of the attempt. Of whom does Jane ever think ill? And whoever is there, whatever might be their former conduct, that she would think capable of such an attempt till it were proved against them. But Jane knows, as well as I do, what Wickham really is. We both know that he has been profligate in every sense of the word, that he has neither integrity nor honour that he is as false and deceitful as he is insinuating. And do you really know all of this? cried Mrs Gardiner, whose curiosity as to the mode of her intelligence was all alive. Elizabeth coloured. I do indeed. I told you the other day of his infamous behaviour to Mr Darcy, and you yourself, when last at Longbourn, heard in what manner he spoke of the man who had behaved with such forbearance and liberality towards him. And there were other circumstances which I am not at liberty, which it is not worthwhile to relate. But his lies about the whole Pemberley family are endless. From what he said of Miss Darcy, I was thoroughly prepared to see a proud, reserved, disagreeable girl. And yet, yet he knew to the contrary himself... He must know that she was as amiable and unpretending as we have found her. But does Lydia know nothing of this? Can she be ignorant of what you and Jane seem so well to understand? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That, that is the worst of all. Till I was in Kent and saw so much both of Mr Darcy and his relation, Colonel Fitzwilliam, I was ignorant of the truth myself. And when I returned home... The militia was to leave Meryton in a week or a fortnight's time. As that was the case, neither Jane, to whom I related the whole, nor I thought it necessary to make our knowledge public. For of what use could it apparently be to anyone that the good opinion which all the neighbourhood had of him should then be overthrown? 
And even when it was settled that Lydia should go with Mrs. Forster, the necessity of opening her eyes to his character never occurred to me. That she could be in any danger from the deception never entered my head. That such a consequence as this could ensue, you may easily believe, was far from my thoughts. When they all removed to Brighton, therefore, you had no reason, I suppose, to believe them fond of each other. Not the slightest. I can remember no symptom of affection on either side, and had anything of the kind been perceptible, you must be aware that ours is not a family on which it would be thrown away. When he first entered the militia, she was ready enough to admire him, but so we all were. Every girl in or near Meryton was out of her senses about him for the first two months. But he never distinguished her by any particular attention. And consequently, after a moderate period of extravagance and wild admiration, her fancy for him gave way. And others of the regiment, who treated her with more distinction, again became her favourites. It may be easily believed that however little of novelty could be added to their hopes, fears and conjectures on this interesting subject by its repeated discussion, no other could detain them from it long during the whole of the journey. From Elizabeth's thoughts it was never absent, fixed there by the keenest of all anguish, self-reproach, she could have no interval of ease or forgetfulness. They travelled as expeditiously as possible, and, sleeping one night on the road, reached Longbourn by dinner-time the next day. It was a comfort to Elizabeth to consider that Jane could not have been wearied by long expectations. The little gardeners, attracted by the sight of a chaise, were standing on the steps of the house as they entered the paddock, and, when the carriage drove up to the door, the joyful surprise that lighted up their faces and displayed itself over their whole bodies in a variety of capers and frisks was the first pleasing earnest of their welcome. Elizabeth jumped out and, after giving each of them a hasty kiss, hurried into the vestibule, where Jane, who came running down from her mother's apartment, immediately met her. Elizabeth, as she affectionately embraced her, whilst tears filled the eyes of both, lost not a moment in asking whether anything had been heard of the fugitives. Not yet, but now my dear uncle is come, I hope... Everything will be well. Is my father in town? Yes, he went on Tuesday, as I wrote you word. And have you heard from him often? We have heard only twice. He wrote me a few lines on Wednesday to say that he had arrived in safety, and to give me his directions, which I particularly begged him to do. He merely added that he should not write again till he had something of importance to mention. And my mother? How is she? How are you all? My mother is... Tolerably well, I trust, though her spirits are greatly shaken. Uh, she is upstairs and will have great satisfaction in seeing you all. She does not yet leave her dressing room. Mary and Kitty, thank heaven, are quite well. But you? How are you? Jane, you look pale. How much you must have gone through. Her sister, however, assured her of being perfectly well, and their conversation, which had been passing while Mr. and Mrs. Gardiner were engaged with their own children, was now put an end to by the approach of the whole party. Jane ran to her uncle and aunt, and welcomed and thanked them both, with alternate smiles and tears. 
when they were all in the drawing-room. The questions which Elizabeth had already asked were, of course, repeated by the others, and they soon found that Jane had no intelligence to give. The sanguine hope of good, however, which the benevolence of her heart suggested had not yet deserted her, she still expected that it would all end well, and that every morning would bring some letter, either from Lydia or her father, to explain their proceedings and perhaps announce their marriage. Mrs. Bennet, to whose apartment they all repaired after a few minutes' conversation together, received them exactly as might be expected, with tears and lamentations of regret, invectives against the villainous conduct of Wickham, and complaints of her own sufferings and ill-usage, blaming everybody but the person to whose ill-judging indulgence the errors of her daughter must principally be owing. If I had been able to carry my point in going to Brighton with all my family, this would not have happened. But poor dear Lydia had nobody to take care of her. Why did the Forsters ever let her go out of their sight? I am sure there was some great neglect or other on their side, for she is not the kind of girl to do such a thing if she had been well looked after. I always thought they were very unfit to have charge of her, but I was overruled, as I always am. Oh, poor dear child. And now here's Mr. Bennet gone away, and I know he will fight Wickham wherever he meets him, and then he will be killed, and what is to become of us all? The Collinses will turn us out before he is cold in his grave. And if you are not kind to us, brother, I do not know what we shall do. They all exclaimed against such terrific ideas, and Mr. Gardiner, after general assurances of his affection for her and all her family, told her that he meant to be in London the very next day, and would assist Mr. Bennet in every endeavour for recovering Lydia. Do not give way to useless alarm. Though it is right to be prepared for the worst, I mean, there is no occasion to look on it as certain. It is not quite a week since they left Brighton. In a few days more, we may gain some news of them. And until we know that they are not married and have no design of marrying, do not let us give the matter over as lost. As soon as I get to town, I shall go to my brother and make him come home with me to Gracechurch Street. And then we may consult together as to what is to be done. Oh, my dear brother. That is exactly what I could most wish for. And now do. When you get to town, find them out, wherever they may be, and if they are not married already, make them marry. And as for the wedding clothes, do not let them wait for that. But tell Lydia she shall have as much money as she chooses to buy them after they are married. And above all, keep Mr. Bennet from fighting. Tell him what a dreadful state I am in, that I am frightened out of my wits and have such trembling, such flutterings all over me, such spasms in my side and pains in my head and such beatings in my heart, that I can get no rest by night nor by day. And tell my dear Lydia not to give any directions about her clothes till she has seen me. 
for she does not know which are the best warehouses. Oh, brother, how kind you are. I know you will contrive it all. But Mr Gardiner, though he assured her again of his earnest endeavours in the cause, could not avoid recommending moderation to her, as well in her hopes as in her fears, and after talking with her in this manner till dinner was on the table, they all left her to vent her feelings to the housekeeper, who attended in the absence of her daughters. Though her brother and sister were persuaded that there was no real occasion for such a seclusion from the family, they did not attempt to oppose it, for they knew that she had not prudence enough to hold her tongue before the servants while they waited at the table, and judged it better that one only of the household, and one whom they could almost trust, should comprehend all her fears and solicitude on the subject. In the dining-room, they were soon joined by Mary and Kitty, who had been too busily engaged in their separate apartments to make their appearance before. One came from her books, the other from her toilette. The faces of both, however, were tolerably calm, and no change was visible in either, except that the loss of her favourite sister, or the anger which she had herself incurred in the business, had given more fretfulness than usual to the accents of Kitty. As for Mary, she was mistress enough of herself to whisper to Elizabeth, with a countenance of grave reflection, soon after they were seated at the table. This is a most unfortunate affair, and will probably be much talked of. But we must stem the tide of malice, and pour into the wounded bosoms of each other the balm of sisterly consolation. Then, perceiving in Elizabeth no inclination of replying, she added, Unhappy as the event must be for Lydia... We may draw from it this useful lesson, that loss of virtue in a female is irretrievable, that one false step involves her in endless ruin, that her reputation is no less brittle than it is beautiful, and that she cannot be too much guarded in her behaviour towards the undeserving of the other sex. Elizabeth lifted up her eyes in amazement, but was too much oppressed to make any reply. Mary, however, continued to console herself with such kind of moral extractions from the evil before them. In the afternoon, the two elder Miss Bennets were able to be for half an hour by themselves, and Elizabeth instantly availed herself of the opportunity of making any inquiries which Jane was equally eager to satisfy. After joining in general lamentations over the dreadful sequel of this event, which Elizabeth considered as all but certain, and Miss Bennet could not assert it to be wholly impossible, the former continued the subject by saying, But tell me all and everything about it which I have not already heard, and give me further particulars. What did Colonel Forster say? Had they no apprehension of anything before the elopement took place? They must have seen them together forever. Colonel Forster did own that he had often suspected some partiality, especially on Lydia's side, but nothing to give him any alarm. I am so grieved for him. His behaviour was attentive and kind to the utmost. He was coming to us in order to assure us of his concern before he had any idea of their not being gone to Scotland. When that apprehension first got abroad, it hastened his journey. And was Denny convinced that Wickham would not marry? Did he know of their intending to go off? Had Colonel Forster seen Denny himself? Yes. In fact... Mr. Denny wrote him to say, 
In, in regards to the, to the unfortunate, unfortunate events aforementioned, I had no knowledge of any such plan or intent from Mr. Wickham himself, nor did Miss Lydia confide in me. I observed nothing in their manner to suggest such a flight was imminent, and I was most sorry to hear that such things had come to pass. He has not repeated his persuasion of their not marrying, and from that I am inclined to hope he might have been misunderstood before. And till Colonel Forster came himself, not one of you entertained a doubt, I suppose, of their being really married. How is it possible that such an idea could enter our brains? I felt a little uneasy, a little fearful of my sister's happiness with him in marriage, because I knew that his conduct had not always been quite right. My father and mother knew nothing of that. They only felt how imprudent a match it must be. Kitty then owned with a very natural triumph on knowing more than the rest of us, that in Lydia's last letter, she had prepared her for such a step. She had known, it seems, of their being in love with each other many weeks. But not before they went to Brighton? No, I believe not. And did Colonel Forster appear to think well of Wickham himself? Does he know his real character? I must confess that he did not speak so well of Wickham as he formerly did. He believed him to be imprudent and extravagant, and since this sad affair has taken place, it is said that he left Meryton greatly in debt. But I hope this may be false. Jane, had we been less secret, had we told what we knew of him... This could not have happened. Perhaps it would have been better. To expose the former faults of any person without knowing what their present feelings were seemed unjustifiable. We acted with the best intentions. Could Colonel Forster repeat the particulars of Lydia's note to his wife? He brought it with him for us to see. Jane then took it from her pocketbook and gave it to Elizabeth. These were the contents. My dear Harriet, you will laugh when you know where I am gone. I cannot help laughing myself at your surprise tomorrow morning as soon as I am missed. I am going to Gretna Green, and if you cannot guess with who, I shall think you a simpleton. Oh, for there is but one man in the world I love, and he is an angel. I shall never be happy without him. So I think it no harm to be off. You need not send them word at Longbourn of my going if you do not like it, for it will make the surprise the greater. When I write my name and sign Lydia Wickham, oh, what a good joke it will be! (laughs) Oh, I can hardly write for laughing. Pray, make my excuses to Pratt for not keeping my engagement and dancing with him tonight. Tell him I hope he will excuse me when he knows all, and tell him I will dance with him at the next ball we meet with great pleasure. I shall send for my clothes when I get to Longbourn, but I wish you would tell Sally to mend that great slit in my worked muslin gown before they are packed up. Oh, goodbye! Send my love to Colonel Forster, and I hope he will drink to our good fortune. Your affectionate friend, Lydia Bennett. 
Oh, thoughtless. Thoughtless, thoughtless, Lydia. Elizabeth cried out when it was finished. What a letter is this? To be written at such a moment. But at least it shows that she was serious on the subject of their journey. Whatever he might afterwards persuade her to, it was not on her side a scheme of infamy. My poor father. How he must have felt it. I never saw anyone so shocked. He could not speak a word for a full ten minutes. My mother was taken ill immediately and the whole house was in such confusion. Oh, Jane, was there a servant belonging to it who did not know the whole story before the end of the day? <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> I hope there was. Uh, but to be guarded at such a time is very difficult. My mother was in hysterics and though I endeavoured to give her every assistance in my power, I am afraid I did not do so much as I might have done, but the horror of what might possibly happen almost uh, took from me my faculties. Your attendance upon her has been too much for you. You do not look well. Oh, but I had been with you. You have had every care and anxiety upon yourself alone. Mary and Kitty have been very kind and would have shared in every fatigue, I am sure, but I did not think it right for either of them. Kitty is slight and delicate, and Mary studies so much that her hours of repose should not be broken into. My Aunt Phillips came to Longbourn on Tuesday after my father went away and was so good as to stay till Thursday with me. She was of great use and comfort to us all, and Lady Lucas has been very kind. She walked here on Wednesday morning to condole with us and offered her services or any of her daughters if they should be of use to us. She had better have stayed at home. Perhaps she meant well, but under such a misfortune as this, one cannot see too little of one's neighbours. Assistance is impossible, condolence insufferable. Let them... Triumph over us at a distance and be satisfied. She then proceeded to inquire into the measures which her father had intended to pursue while in town for the recovery of his daughter. He meant, I believe, to go to Epsom, the place where they last changed horses, see the postilions and try if anything could be made out from them. His principal object must be to discover the number of the hackney coach which took them from Clapham. It had come with a fare from London and he thought the circumstance of a gentleman and ladies removing from one carriage into another might be remarked. He meant to make inquiries at Clapham. If he could anyhow discover what house the coachman had before sat down his fare, he determined to make inquiries there and hoped it might not be impossible to find out the stand and number of the coach. I do not know any of the other designs that he had formed, but he was in such a hurry to be gone and his spirits so greatly discomposed that I had difficulty in finding out even so much as this.
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Ballarat National Theatre's adaption of Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen. This production is directed by Liana Skews, narrated by Olivia French and prepared for production by Elizabeth Bradford, Olivia French, Liana Skews and Miley Vanderbale. This episode features the voices of Olivia French as Elizabeth Bennett, Liz Hardiman as Mrs. Bennett, Kiralee McCalla as Mary Bennett, Daisy Kate Kennington as Lydia Bennett, Liana Skews as Jane Bennett, Ange Kai as Mrs. Gardner, Tim Murphy as Mr. Gardner, and James Waite as Mr. Denny. This podcast, that's what it's called, yes. Wow, you think I would have learned that by this point, this podcast was produced by Ballarat National Theatre on the lands of our traditional custodians, the Wuthering people. Take a breath. Where was I up to? There. Oh, great. Cast recordings were made in the lands of the Wadarong, Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Jaja Wurrung people. Ballarat National Theatre acknowledges and pays respect to our traditional custodians and to their past, present and emerging leaders. And just to put her on the spot, hey Sarah. Yeah? Do you know any jokes? No. Well, the audience is waiting, you need a joke. This is the worst joke I've ever heard. You ready, Sarah? When you think about it, Orion's belt is just a big waste of space (laughs) yeah i know it's a pretty bad joke only three stars out of five (laughs) it just keeps getting worse bye